Okay. Yeah, so we're talking about a story, uh, a prophetic word that I got from Jane, and uh, she was talking about how this church is kind of hidden, and how it's filled with people who are uh, giant killers, and uh, that it's going to grow. I think her prophetic was, word was like, it's kind of like hidden, and it's going to become a church that's filled with giant killers. We're all going to walk out that way. And it, I just couldn't get it out of my head. Uh, it was one of those things that just stuck with me. And it made me think about David's Mighty Men. And uh, David's Mighty Men, it's just, it's just such a cool thing. When, I don't know if any of you have learned about David's Mighty Men before. Um, it's just such a cool thing. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that and how I feel like that might be true for our church here. Uh, I have some, some passages. I think Walter's busy. Uh, would you be able to just put up the first passage, 1 Samuel 22? Thanks. It just says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there with him, and everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were about 400 men. Sounds like a great group of people. <laughs> I don't know about you. <laughs> everyone who's in distress, everyone who's in debt, everyone who's bitter. <laughs> Thanks, Jane. <laughs> so apparently we're like the people in the cave of Adullam. Uh, I don't know who we're, who we're all attracting here. Um, <laughs> I'm just thinking. But uh, uh, I don't, we don't know a lot about what happened in that cave. Uh, <laughs> I just imagine it being a pretty tough place to be, <laughs> especially in the beginning. Um, but we know kind of what came out of it. So there's this kind of mis- mystery about this cave and what happened, what happened there. But we know, we know that these amazing things came out of this cave. And uh, one of the main things that came out of it uh, was this apparent like devotion to David. And, and I would even probably, if I, if I could, take a step back and say that there's this amazing like, love for each other in this cave. And we don't hear a lot about that, but there's this one act that I wanted to point out that just really exemplifies, the, I think, the kind of community that eventually developed in that group of people. So I'll go to the second scripture. This is Second Samuel 23, verse 15. Pull that up. And it says, And David said longingly. I won't get into all the context. This is just an interesting passage. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me a drink, would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. So, it's just so unnecessary, right? It's just so unnecessary, so passionate, and so powerful to see 
David making, I don't know, I mean, he said it longingly, but it, it almost, to me, it feels passingly. You know, like just this comment, I'd love to drink some water. I don't even know if he was thirsty or if he just liked the well water there. And, and these men break through and do this heroic act, unnecessary, to show, really, what are they showing? Um, they're just showing how much they love him, right? There's this amazing love and this uh, amazing passion and that is something that I would love to see in our community. I would love to see that in Maplecrest. Just kind of unnecessary uh, love for each other. Um, and I think there's a question, kind of how do you develop that? And maybe what was the ingredients that helped these people in this cave of Adullam to, to make this community? Well, there's a study that was done and uh, it was one of my favorite studies that I reference a fair amount. Um, it's probably become the, the single most, uh, the study that's the single most exemplary for how to build community. And it's called the Robber's Cave. I don't know why they call it the Robber's Cave, but, or sorry, the Robber's Camp, I think. Anyway, there's this camp, and they bring these two groups of kids, and these two groups of kids don't know about each other and they already have like a fairly good community amongst themselves and they do some things to help them develop even more community at the camp and one group is called the Rattlers and one group is called the Eagles and so they develop a flag for each group and they've got different activities that they do they've got their whole identity and they are you know happy kids right then what they start to do they go into phase two of the experiment and in this phase they start to have competitions between the two groups. The Rattlers go up against the Eagles, and uh, they have competitions with prizes, and uh, the groups start to dislike each other, because it's always one against the other, and they're always very passionate, and they always want to win. And, you know, without any initiation from, uh, you know, from the leaders of the camp or anything, they actually start to make fun of each other verbally, and it gets to the point where uh, one group actually burned the flag of the other group. They were like having a burning ceremony uh, in, in hatred for, I think, the Eagles. The Eagles, yeah, the Eagles flag was burned. And then in retaliation that night, the Rattlers were visited in the middle of the night and had all their bunks upturned and things like this. And, and uh, so they really, I don't know if you guys have ever done that. I spent a lot of time at camp and I've told some stories here about camp. I remember one time we were at Camp, camp Moose Lake and I don't know what was going on then. I don't remember a lot of the details, but I do remember climbing through the window of uh, another cabin at, in the middle of the night. And, uh, or was it in the day? Yeah, it was during the day we were preparing because they were out. They were out in the lake or something, I don't know. And we climbed through the window of this cabin and we did everything we could think of. You know, we put all the mattresses in the shower. Um, and, and I learned something that day. I learned that you can make plastic wrap almost invisible if you stretch it out just right over a toilet and uh, so the toilet was completely covered with plastic wrap without really being able to notice it at all anyway so I can identify a little bit with the eagles myself uh, but anyway these two groups they just really disliked each other and then they went into the third phase of the experiment which was this tr attempt to reunify them and they did all these things that you would think about in order to unify two groups, which was they, you know, they ate together, they had games, I think they had a bean collecting contest. 
And, and none of this really worked. In fact, uh, a few times, the activities that they had, uh, like eating together and, and doing these activities, ended up in food fights afterwards. They, they really just would not start to like each other, despite these kind of joined activities together. Then they, what they did was they, uh, this was the second part of that reunification process, uh, they actually started to sabotage the camp, the leaders did. So the first thing they did was um, they took the water uh, pump and they, um, I don't know the details of how this all worked, but apparently they stuffed a bag in something. Anyway, they, they blocked the thing, right? So the camp didn't have any water. And of course, everybody noticed this pretty quick. And the kids all came and they, the leaders allowed the kids to, this was the point, right? The kids were supposed to fix the problem. I don't know how they convinced them that they weren't supposed to fix the problem that the kids were supposed to. But anyway, they got the kids all around. And they're all giving ideas and everything. And they pull out the bag and they solve it. And then all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, and then they had um, uh, movies brought in. And there was two movies, Treasure Island and something else. And in these, and then they said to everybody, do you want to watch these movies? And the kids were all super excited, yes. And then they said, we don't have enough money for the movies. We have to have money for the movies. And so they negotiated and the Eagles gave some money and the... Uh, Rattlers gave some money, and the Rattlers he actually had some kids who went home sick, so they had to give even more money per kid than the other group, but they did it anyway. And then the camp gave some of the money, and they got their movie for that night. And then they had a food truck coming with food for everybody, and it got stuck in the mud on purpose. And all of the kids had to go out and push this truck and get it into the camp, and it needed everybody to do it. They were doing, the Rattlers couldn't do it on their own, the Eagles couldn't do it on their own. They needed to do it together. And then they went on this activity and they had to go on the bus after all of this and they noticed that when they sat down in their seats, everybody was mixed up. The eagles weren't sitting together anymore and the rattlers weren't sitting together anymore. Everybody was sitting together. It's an interesting experiment because there were two things that were necessary in order for these groups to become together, to be unified, very much like what we saw in the cave of Adullam. They needed opposition. They needed a problem. And they needed to need each other. They needed everybody to push the truck out they needed everybody's ideas to get the bag out. And they needed everybody's money to get the movie. I'm going to talk a little bit about the second part of this, which is, okay, so that's the community part. And then I want to talk now about giant killing. You don't kill giants just by everybody getting together. So how does that happen when you could kill a giant? Because David killed a giant, right? David killed a giant in 1 Samuel 17. I think this is up there as well. Do I have it right from the beginning? Yeah, okay. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, and his helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had a bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head 
weighed 600 shekels of iron. Now, if I was going to focus on this passage for the whole sermon, I would know what all of this meant, but I don't. But one thing I do know, just to quickly tell you how big Goliath was, we apparently, Natasha was telling me, that we did a David and Goliath Sunday school just recently. And for that, we drew uh, drew Goliath on a piece of paper and hung him up on the wall. And he actually is the height of this ceiling here. So he was as tall as this wall is to that ceiling. So not this tight, well, it's this one, but this one. So that's how tall Goliath is. He's a big guy. Soldiers were all afraid. They're all shaking. Nobody has the courage to face him until David comes along. And then in verse 50, I'll just read this part because it's so fun. A little gruesome. 1 Samuel 17, verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistines with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran over and stood over the Philistine, Goliath, and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. I want to be a giant killer. It's so interesting that David was able to kill this giant. And he did it by building courage over time, by killing bears and killing lions, and eventually having the faith to kill a giant. But this is the part that's less known. Later on, 2 Samuel 21, if we go to the next part. Where does it start? Did I start at 15? Okay. There was war between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And this is the interesting part here. And David grew weary. He's getting older. And help me with, oh no, don't help me. Lord, help me with this. Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants. And then they go on to describe this giant, whose spear was 300 shekels, I believe that's the same as Goliath, of bronze, and was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. Hey, there's a David, and he's getting tired. There's David. I'm going to go get him. But Abishai, the son of Zeruah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore, you shall no longer go with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So David couldn't do it anymore. Grew a bit tired. That that resonated a little bit with me. He grew a bit tired, and, and then all of a sudden... One of his men killed a giant. Another giant killer among them. Not nearly, there's not as nearly as much scripture devoted to this. It's becoming kind of a, almost a regular thing. Like this was, David got a lot of scripture for his kill. Verse 18. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jar, Orgim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite. You're doing pretty good. The shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. That sounds like Goliath too. And there was again a war with Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. I don't know why this is such a big deal. 24 in number. (laughs) He had an extra finger, everybody. And he also was a descendant of the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, I believe David's brother was at the first battle when he was afraid, struck him down. At the end of his life, he's able to kill a giant. These four were descended from the giants of Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants 
And I don't think they killed four giants because that was all the giants they could kill. I think that they killed four giants because that was all the giants that there were to kill. I think that they had gotten pretty good at killing giants. I think that everybody was going out there and they were like, oh, a giant here, you want this one? I'll take him, you know, like who's going to get to him first kind of thing, you know, like your turn. The mighty men had all kinds of like super amazing acts that they were doing and killing giants was just one of them. Something that was overwhelmingly fearful in the beginning, so unlikely, is now just one after the other, just picking them off. A community of victory. So they had their community, they had their unity that helped with the, them with this. But if we want to be giant killers, this is what I was thinking. If we want to be giant killers, don't we need somebody who's already killed a giant? Who's our David? Who's our David? We need an example. People before they saw somebody who killed a giant were in fear. They were too afraid to attack Goliath. So who's killed a giant in Maplecrest? If this is our prophecy, this is one of our prophecies. Then I thought of Cliff and Wilma. They killed a giant. They were well recognized for it. At some level, their fame went throughout the country. Giant killers. Killed a giant of revenge, hatred. Bitterness. And killed him with a stone of forgiveness. Something so unlikely, so small. I don't talk a lot about Candace. Candace is my sister who was murdered in 1984. She rose to death and she suffered quite a bit before she died. And in the trial we learned that she had suffered more even maybe than we had thought, or at least more than I thought. I won't get into that. But that's one thing I wanted to say, was that she suffered a lot. And then the other thing that's important to know about her story for what I'm going to say next, is that we actually believe that, uh, maybe this isn't an actually, we believe that Candace is in heaven. And we don't believe that just because she's, our, she's my sister or part of our family. We believe that in part because uh, Wilma's had some experiences, experience uh, that was quite profound for her and, and even to hear it, that suggested that Candace is in heaven. I can't know that until I go to heaven, but I have faith for that, and I have reason to believe that, and that's important to know that I believe that. You don't have to believe that, but I do. And I remember going through the trial. I'm not sure which one. There were many. Um, there was a pretrial and a trial and then an appeal and then a retrial and then, a, and then another Supreme Court or something. I don't know. Anyway, there's lots of trials, and it was one of the first ones. And I was learning more and more about what was happening to Candace at the time. I was learning about the details of how she had been hurt. And we were learning, not even through the trial, but we were learning through the people who were coming to the trial, like Grant's family. We were learning about him, and we were learning from other victims of Grant about what his general practices were in the past. So we were actually getting all this secondary information that wasn't really you know, what you would consider worthy to go into court, but was still, for us, very valid and, and informative. And from that, we learned probably that Candace had said no to him. I mean, he was a sexual offender, and he, she probably said no, because if she had said yes, she probably would have survived. 
Because that's what other victims had told us. They said, they said, I said yes, I gave in. And they said, I wish I was Candace. I wish I hadn't. And we learned all about the suffering, and again, I'm not going to get into that. And I was thinking about Candace and what she had done and what she had gone through and kind of even some of the prophetic words that she had gotten beforehand. She'd been prepared. She'd asked Wilma, you know, what if I die? What will happen to my impact on the world? She'd kind of had this question in her mind not long before this had all happened. And I started to feel this kind of almost, not reverence, that's not quite the right word, but kind of uh, appreciation for you know, what had happened to her and what she had gone through. And I was, like, I was actually going out on missions, and I was thinking about my own ministry, you know, being a missionary, and kind of how I was almost hoping um, to be a martyr at the time. That might sound strange. I didn't want to be a martyr necessarily right away, but I wanted to be a martyr, to be counted worthy. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about Candace, and I was thinking, she's not really a martyr, is she? She wasn't killed for her faith. She wasn't killed because she was a Christian. And the, what came to mind to me was the story of Job. And the devil talking to God and saying, you know what, you think Job's so great. You know, let me go and do some things to him and we'll see if he has faith. We'll see. And so there's this idea that if you suffer, if you make somebody suffer enough, they're going to be tempted to give up their faith. That's what the devil thought. The devil thought, if I make him suffer, he'll give up his faith. Let's test it. And Job's wife said something similar. She said, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Curse God and die. Why did she say that? Because everything had fallen apart. It was all gone. It was all just left with suffering. Curse God and die. He didn't. In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. And it just makes me think about, you know, what giants we sometimes have to kill. And, you know, the, the giants that Cliff and Wilma had to kill in forgiveness isn't obvious, but I think it's still more obvious than what Candace had in that moment. And that was, I think, this giant of suffering. And I don't think she was maybe a martyr in, in you know, the technical definition of a martyr, but I think that she had to overcome and it made me appreciate the fact that everybody who is suffering is experiencing a temptation to curse God and die. Oftentimes people question their faith when they're suffering. And the greater the suffering, the greater the questioning. Sometimes the, the giant that we kill isn't as obvious as the one that David was killing. It's this not-so-famous expression of faith in the face of the suffering that can sometimes happen in life. And this was like a personal discernment, but it came to me, it was like, I think Candace was a hero. 
in that moment. Again, it's based on some premises that are based on my experiences. It's not as obvious. But to me, in that moment, it was like, wow, she faced down extreme suffering. And she said, no. And she ended up in heaven. She didn't curse God and die in that moment. And I remember, this is a tough kid. I remember thinking in that moment, wow, a Dirksen can do it. It gave me hope that a Dirksen can kill a giant. That I could kill a giant. And sometimes we need that hope. We need that personalized hope. And I think that the people who were in that cave got personal with David. They saw him as a father. And I think they adopted that hope. David could do it. And I'm with David. I'm with David. So I can do it. They needed that hope. That out of that community, out of that closeness, came an identification. It came a reality of, of a shared faith. I think that there's already giant killers in this congregation. I think that there's actually many. I've heard stories from this congregation. And I think that there's many people who are quiet, giant killers. Their fame has not been proclaimed. It may never be proclaimed on this earth. I think we're already there. And I think we can do more. I think there's more giants to kill. So I do believe that Maplecrest is gathered and hidden. I do believe that we will be a people who are giant killers, and I believe that we already are. And I think that we have to do a few things in order to make sure, a few specific things, you know, beyond the most obvious, like love Jesus, but a few specific things. One is we need to see our giant. For us in, to become a community, I think, I think that that camp experiment with those kids and they saw their, their goal together, I think that there's a few things that we need in order to create a community. And one is we can't just be focused on each other. If we get in a cave and try to make community and making community is our goal, I think we're going to get really, really frustrated. I want to have another coffee. If I have another coffee, I will be a good community. And that's just not going to happen that way. We're not going to get community by more and more. Coffee is important. But we're not going to get a community <laughs> by just focusing on making better coffee, having better talks with each other. That's not it didn't work on those kids, and I don't think it's going to work for us. What we need is opposition. There's so many giants. We just have to pick one. Maybe God will help us, but we need a giant to kill. We need opposition. I think God designed us to be on this earth and to be in opposition. He was putting us in a war, and he said, if you guys are with me, then you're going to be against something. 
you're going to be pushing on something. And if you're not pushing, then I don't know if you're really with me. Because I'm pushing. I'm here for people. I'm here for everybody on this earth. And they're not, they don't all know me. So let's push. That's what I'm about. And if you push, you will have community. Because you're going to have a challenge. And if you push with wisdom, you will know that you need each other. You have a goal that you just can't reach. And if you get into a delusion thinking that you can do this by yourself, then you're not going to have community either. But if you know that he made us all with different skill sets in order to actually get to that goal, and if you know that we're pushing against an enemy, then I believe that we can be unified. And then, I think we need to give each other hope. Today I shared a story about killing a giant. There's lots of giant killers in the Bible, and I believe that we can get our identity from that as a starting place. And I think we can also get stories from each other about killing giants to give each other hope, because that's what they had in that cave. They weren't just huddled in the cave with somebody that didn't have a reputation. They were huddled in the cave with somebody who gave them hope. Now, I don't think that we've killed the biggest or the meanest giant out there. And I don't want to say that you know, we're the biggest giant killers out there. But I do believe that we need to start with the experiences that we have, that the victories that we have and we need to build. And I think we need to acknowledge the fact that, yeah, we've killed a bear. We need to go still kill a lion. We need to still go kill this giant, that giant. And I think that we can get more victories. But I think it's not, and I don't think it's just us who need to tell our story. I think we need to tell our stories with each other. Because I think that there's lots of giant killers in this congregation already. And I think that there's giant killers who are coming to support us. We can be Davids for each other. We can give each other hope. And I believe that if a Dirksen can do it, I believe that we can all do it. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your prophetic word to our community. I thank you that you're emphasizing in this season bringing people who can come together, recognizing each of our own gifts, recognizing the different parts that we each have to play. And I pray that you would help us to join together in pushing. That we would join together and not just go with the flow of what's happening in our world, but we would come together for a purpose, to serve your purposes in the earth, even when it's challenging. And I, would, I pray that you would give us hope, that you would help us to see what we've already done. And I pray that that would help give us faith to do more. Amen.
one of the conclusions he comes to is that the fall is us 